Ah, government. What a delight. I remember when I was introduced to the idea of income taxes. I uh, went something like, okay, so let me get this straight. The government requires, without a thorough explanation to me uh, from the government, um, to submit a form with detailed financial information about my earnings for this past year. And they're taking my money, but I have to fill out the form. And if I fill out the form incorrectly, I can get in trouble. Oh, and have you ever been at the mercy of the government for something important? Let me give you a short and riveting tale of bureaucracy. So I recently purchased a vehicle and I needed a title and tag. Okay, I submitted the title application and it was sent to Jackson for approval. The title was taking forever to come through, so long that my title application no longer served as a proper substitute for a proper tag and title. So we went calling around and tried to find out what happened. And I kid you not, the man who signs the titles retired suddenly. So every title application process in Mississippi came to a screeching halt. Once that was finally resolved, the process was still taking forever. We still couldn't drive our vehicle, et cetera, et cetera. So we called again only to find out that they couldn't process any title applications because I'm not kidding. The printer that printed the titles wasn't working. All that turned our new vehicle into an expensive piece of metal in our driveway. Uh, so now that I've obviously gained your attention with those beautiful descriptions of functional statementships and tax dollars at work, uh, what's the point I'm trying to make? Well, government of any kind is often frustrating and boring. But even though it's frustrating and boring, it is very important. Uh, the reason that we weren't able to drive our vehicle was because of mundane, really dumb reasons. Uh, but we were still unable to drive our vehicle, right? It's still really important. Um, any organization of human beings beyond the individual requires some form of organization. Uh, I mean, even families need parents to be leaders in the home over their children. And so without leadership and government, any organization of people would crumble to pieces. In the same way, the church, as we've been talking about, requires defined leadership to provide direction, manage resources, teach, handle disputes, and create new projects for a church. In uh, this episode of Church Basics, we are beginning a new section. In the first two episodes, we kind of went over what is a church. And so we talked about, you know, kind of abstractly, uh, how is a church described in the New Testament? And then last week in, in episode two, we talked about uh, the membership of a church, you know, um, the people that make up the church. All right, so after we talked about what a church is, the next three episodes, we're going to talk about how is the church led, like who leads the church, um, is I think the question that I've been officially addressing here. Uh, so this week, we're going to talk about uh, church government kind of in general. There's actually a lot of ways that churches govern themselves, and there's actually been uh, denominations and churches split and formed over the church government process, like how a church uh, organizes and governs itself. Uh, some favor more um, hierarchical forms of leadership, as we'll see. Uh, some churches, they favor more um, individualistic, you know, uh, one church at a time kinds of forms of government. 
uh, and, you know, even in those two areas, you know, some valuing hierarchy and process some valuing uh, independence. I mean, e- even that is experienced to different degrees, depending on what denomination you're talking about. Uh, some churches, they value the lordship of Christ. Um, and some people uh, value the power of the office that a church leader holds. Um, so when you consider the ins and outs of church government, there's actually a, a lot of variation, right? So um, there, there are just many different branching paths that uh, people take in governing their churches. Uh, so um, when you consider the ins and outs of church government, there's actually some significant variation um, and that can occur in places such as the role and the value of scripture, uh, the value that's inerrant to being a Christian and a member of a local church. So in other words, with all of this difference and this variation, uh, all of this, you know, kind of differing opinions, we do have to take church government pretty seriously, right? If it's serious enough for people to organize, uh, denominations around, we need to understand why uh, church government is important. So today I'm going to give an overview of the three just broad, broad categories of church government, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, and congregational forms of church government. And again, this isn't going to be like me saying, hey, you can only have three kinds of church government. I mean, you have uh, branching paths in each of these, you know, three big branches, but This is the way that people have kind of divided uh, church government up. So that's Episcopalian, Presbyterian, and Congregational. Uh, So I want you to note, though, as we go through this, um, I've never, like, participated, been a member in a church outside of the Baptist tradition. So um, I'm, I'm kind of... Uh, like, I can't remember the guy who said it. Uh, you probably heard the quote before. Um, I'm Baptist born, I'm Baptist bred, and one day I'll be Baptist dead. Uh, and that's kind of the case for me. So I'm relying on reading about these other traditions uh, from outside sources, right? I'm not uh, a member, never have been a member of these congregations, so I'm a little bit out of my element. And so if you catch me saying something incorrect, you know, feel free to let me know and I'll make a correction. Uh, you know, I'm again, looking at this as an outsider. So feel free to let me know. All right. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and dive into this. Uh, as we get going though, I want to share just a quick bit about how we arrive at a decision and a position on church government. So, as you know, we have a set of bylaws at Trace, and they give specific, pretty binding instructions on how our church is supposed to operate, like it designates who elders are and what authority they have. And having that is handy because it's specific. There's no just wild guessing, throwing darts at the board uh, on what we're supposed to do, none of that. Um... However, the Bible does not handle the leadership of the church this way, right? It speaks about leaders, and 
Uh, it seems they had some kind of process in the New Testament, but there's not like a lot of specific instructions. There's not a bylaw there. You know, there's no, hey, you know, once a, once a quarter you need to evaluate your leaders using this document. No, there's none of that uh, specific uh, process given to leadership in uh, the New Testament. Um, but uh, if we, uh, we understand that, and the reason behind that, that there's kind of like some ambiguity there, I think that'll be helpful for us uh, as we, we look at church government structure, and I think that'll also just kind of be a helpful activity for us in general. Uh, so, um, we believe that the Bible is inspired and errant and authoritative, uh, but it came to men in a particular time and place. Uh, they had specific needs that were pressing in their own time, and God used those needs to preserve his written word. Like, so, Paul would write to specific churches, he would write specific letters to specific people to address a specific problem, um, but even though that those letters were, were specific, God uses that as his written word uh, to be instructive to us today, all right? Because they were in a particular time and place, though, there are many things that just simply weren't covered by Scripture uh, either way, or they're, ju they're just kind of addressed from the side, um, you know, not, not head on. Um, and that's why, even though the doctrine of the Trinity is, you know, prevalent in the New Testament, uh, it wasn't... We didn't get the specific formula of the Trinity that we have today. Uh, you know, God is one God and three persons, and, and the Father, Spirit, and Son. Um, we didn't get that in the Bible per se. That came about, uh, you know, soon after uh, the Bible was written in its, its current form that we have it today. So, um, when you look at the young and growing church in Acts and in understand uh, how that, that church grew from there and how these letters were addressed to the churches around the same time period, uh, they did have a need for organized leadership, but the church was much smaller. It was much able to, you know, handle things through just, you know, kind of direct conversation. Um, and so th there hadn't been even as much time to have, have problems that would become policy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, there weren't necessarily procedures that were formally spelled out in the early church. Uh, so we kind of have to be content with the fact that while some things are specific in Scripture, other things are not. And that leads me to my larger point. Uh, I've said in our first two episodes that we want to let Scripture be our guide and authority in our practice and our understanding of the church, but what do we do when the scriptures are not specific, right? If they don't give us the exact info to the kind of question that we are asking. Well, that particular uh, situation of, of trying to understand what to do with scriptures not specific uh, drives a lot of debate, as you might imagine. Um, so there's basically two authorities. Authorities that people use in determining how a church should function. Tradition and scripture. Some groups, they lean heavily on tradition. They believe that since scripture is, is silent on some of these issues or, or not just really specific, um, that there is license and room for tradition to step in and fill that void. So Catholics, for example, maintain the process of apostolic succession uh, that we'll talk about later. Um, but they believe that the tradition of this practice speaks to its validity, that this practice has been going on for a long, long, long time. Uh, they believe that that speaks to its validity since Scripture doesn't contradict it. 
But other groups believe that it's better to stick as closely as possible to the scriptures. Even so, uh, I will say, even even when you're trying to stick as closely as you possibly can to the scriptures, which we, we try to do at uh, Trace Crossing, um, it is nearly impossible uh, to have zero practices that aren't just, you know, picked directly uh, from Scripture and placed into your church's leadership structure. So, for example, at Trace, uh, we've always maintained a strict adherence to Scripture in our leadership structure, uh, but we do take elder nominations annually. Is that something that's derived explicitly from Scripture? No, it's not derived explicitly from Scripture, but it is a practice that's meant to help us do the biblical practice of finding and appointing elders in our midst. So, just keep in mind uh, that in each of these three branches of church leadership, uh, there is a way of getting where they get. Uh, we take different approaches. Um, we're not all taking the same path to get there. Some value tradition, some value scripture. And of course, everybody uh, at some level values some bit of both. All right. I know that I said that that would be a quick summary of those things, um, and I got a little long-winded on it, but hopefully that should shed some light on why we have these three broad branching paths of uh, kinds of church governments, and that should uh, shed some light on this as we overview it. All right, so now we're going to go ahead and get into what you came for, uh, three main branches of church government. We're going to start with Episcopalianism. Episcopalianism. I cannot tell you how outside of my wheelhouse I am with this one. Uh, Episcopalianism is like church government for people who wear robes while they preach and have flying buttresses on their church buildings. Um, and as you know, I come from the tradition where someone can get away with preaching in jeans and a hoodie, and we worship in buildings that were made from the same material as my garbage can. Uh, there's anything wrong with, with that, either of those really, um, just to say that I am way out of my element, uh, when it comes to Episcopalianism. So, um, and really this is going to be the case for all three, but I'm going to be mostly kind of skimming the surface here. All right. So the basics, basics on Episcopalianism, uh, Episcopalianism was actually the model for church government for a long, long time. Uh, I grew out of a need for a structure and a desire to have one flock and one shepherd, as John ten sixteen calls for. Now, this unified uh, front, this, hey, this is the only way to do church government, um, became the Holy Catholic Church and continues as an institution uh, to this day. Um, obviously, when the Reformation, the Reformation came about, uh, there was some modification done to this method of church government. We get the other two models that we'll look at later. Uh, but now, I believe, uh, along with the Catholic Church, you have the Episcopalian Church, the Anglican Church, the United Methodist Church, etc. Um, these are churches that operate with an Episcopalian structure, um, generally. Um, the way that they do it is obviously going to be different, but they use the same kind of government. 
All right, so Episcopalian church governments are hierarchical, uh, meaning that they are that there are levels of authority um, that kind of cascade down. Like you have fewer sources of authority, and um, and more obviously as as it goes down to the congregational level. Um, you know, kind of like a pyramid, not not like a pyramid scheme, just in the shape of a pyramid. Uh, but anyway, um, so. You need to know uh, that this branching um, system, it comes down to a rector or a priest who holds authority over um, a specific congregation. And above them, you have bishops. Above them, uh, archbishops. In Roman Catholicism specifically, the hierarchy works pretty long way. It works its way all the way up to the Pope, the Supreme Pontiff, the Pontifex Maximus, whatever you want to call him. Um, in a way, um, this is probably going to seem sacrilegious to people who hold to this model, but you can kind of think of like manager, regional manager, you know, all the way up to the COO. Um, and that's kind of how it works in the Episcopal structure. Uh, so in Episcopal churches, the bishop is the primary seat of authority. Uh, in fact, that, uh, in fact, uh, bishop is where the name Episcopal comes from. The Greek word episkopos means overseer, and it's translated into our English as bishop. Uh, so you got you know, episcopus in Greek and bishop in English. So in a way, um, the bishop is saying the same thing as episcopal. But anyway, uh, as far as I understand, the bishop has nearly unilateral authority in some uh, settings like the Roman Catholic Church. Um, I don't. I don't think it's like an absolute authority or anything. It's just. Um, it's it's pretty high though. Uh, the power they they have there. I I don't know all the limits to that. You you would have to ask a Catholic. Um, however, as you as you move through these churches, the power that's that's granted to the bishop uh, does vary um, from you know uh, tradition to tradition. Um, one of the most important things to know about bishops in Episcopal churches is that they are appointed by other bishops. Um, ordinarily, like in your Presbyterian and congregational settings, um, congregations choose their leader. Uh, but in churches with an Episcopal government, bishops ordain other bishops through the process of apostolic succession. Uh, apostolic succession is basically... Uh, the doctrine that there is an unbroken line of authority beginning with the apostles and handed down uh, through the laying on of hands from one generation of leaders to the next. So you've got uh, one generation of bishops that ordains, uh, you know, new bishops for, for service, and those bishops, you know, ordain the next group of bishops, so on and so forth. It's, I think, how the general process works in the Catholic Church. I'm not certain enough to say that it works in some of the more... Um, some of the more Protestant uh, type um, denominations. All right, but when we talk about strengths and weaknesses of Episcopal structure, let's let's start with strengths. Episcopal government structures are organized. You have to give them that. It's why you see it uh, reflected in you know capitalism with the manager, you know, uh, regional manager, COO structure that we talked about earlier. Um, it works. And also, it should it should help with mob rule. Um, 
So fa- factions in the congregation, you know, will, will have a tendency to kind of uh, try to take over in certain forms of, of church government. Well, it's hard to do that when um, the congregation does not have, you know, really any authority in the church outside of, you know, it's giving. Um, I'll also say uh, that it does neatly fit the, the pattern of apostles appointing elders in the New Testament. So that's, that's really it, its one main scriptural support. Uh, but now the weaknesses. First, Episcopal uh, government is pretty heavily based in tradition. Uh, and we do not believe that tradition carries the same authoritative uh, weight in Scripture. Like, for instance, uh, the the role of bishop and elder, pastor, they seem to all functionally be uh, the same thing. And so um, we, we kind of see those all as the same thing, uh, but, but they do not uh, necessarily. A bishop is its, its own place of authority. Um, the hierarchy in Episcopal structure, for instance, isn't really a pattern that we see in scripture, like the, you know, branching paths, like one person having authority over another person, eventually having authority over a local congregation. Um, and we'll say, you know, this approach can create a tiered structure of Christian worth where bishops are seen as more worthy Christians than uh, the ones in the pew. And finally, I just want to point out apostolic succession. Uh, the process where bishops ordain other bishops um, through this unbroken chain that goes back to the apostles. Um, that's not exactly easily proven with a historical record. I, I don't think most uh, really serious historians think that that's, that's very, um, you know, open a shot uh, thing. All right. So um, we have that form of government, thank goodness, covered. Uh, we're now going to move on to the Presbyterian category of church government. Mm, I'm glad here with Presbyterian forms of church government that we have finally moved from something I don't know a lot about to something else I don't know a whole lot about. <laughs> All right, so uh, Presbyterian uh, comes from the Greek word presbyteros, so at least, you know, that's closer to its Greek word than Episcopal and Bishop anyway. Uh, but we translate that um Presbyterian, presbyteros, the, the word in the New Testament, we translate that as elder. So Presbyterian structure is similar in some ways to the Episcopal church structure, uh, but different in others. Um, mostly only Presbyterians use the Presbyterian form of church government, but you can also throw like the big R reformed in there already. All right, the basic here. Basic thing you need to know is that the leaders in a Presbyterian structure are elders. Uh, most local congregations have both lay and paid elders. Um, they're gathered together in a group called a session. Uh, most of the time, these elders are divided into teaching and ruling elders, and that's you know pretty straightforward. There, uh, your teaching elders mostly teach. Your ruling elders uh, mostly rule. Yeah, or lead the church. Um, it's also important to know that in these churches, uh, the elders rule the church as opposed to just leading. And if you ever heard that distinction, you know, the distinction between elder-led and, and elder-ruled churches, 
Um, well, so this means that the elders have the authority to make decisions rather than they, you know, just create proposals that are subject to congregational approval. You know, that's that's the big difference there. In an elder-led church, the elders will create suggestions. They, they will uh, push the church in a certain direction, but it's still up to the church to ratify the decisions of the elders. Well, in a Presbyterian uh, elder-ruled church, those elders have the authority to make uh, decisions themselves. All right, so we also need to talk about the way that these churches are organized. Um, another important component to Presbyterian church government is its hierarchical nature, like that of the uh, Episcopal form of government. In a Presbyterian form of government, certain members of the church represent the church at the regional presbytery. Uh, this is a governing body that oversees several churches in a region. Uh, and the decisions of the presbytery have authority over the churches in its region. Um, so this is, you know, um, one of the big differences here is rather than a bishop having uh, oversight over churches in an area, you have a, a group of people that come from these congregations, right? You send elders from these individual congregations all to come to the presbytery, and they, you know, debate and make decisions together. And those decisions are binding on uh, the congregation. So you actually have people from those congregations making decisions about those congregations uh, that they are in. Um, so uh, over all the presbyteries is the general assembly, uh, the chief governing body in the Presbyterian churches. Um, its, its decisions affect all the churches in um, all of its regions, you know. Uh, so I think you also have synods, I think, that are a step in between uh, presbyteries and the general session, um, or excuse me, the general assembly, uh, but I'm not sure exactly how much of a region they cover. Uh, but anyway, and anyway, all of, all of that is the same way that you have members, um, you have elders, excuse me, of these churches that are actually uh, a part of these discussions all the way up to the general assembly uh, that makes those kind of decisions. Um, so that's just a very brief overview of how Presbyterian churches govern themselves. Um, I am sure that I messed something up, and especially if you have a background in Presbyterianism and I got something wrong, uh, feel free to write in and let me know, uh, Avery at tracecrossing.org. All right, so in evaluating Presbyterian forms of government, uh, I think they are a biblically acceptable form of church government. And by that, I, don't, I mean uh, that I don't think they value tradition to the point of, of undervaluing the authority of Scripture in determining uh, church structure like I think Episcopalianism does. Um, however, my biggest concerns with Presbyterianism stem from its hierarchy, right? Uh, I'm convinced uh, convictionally to the autonomy of the local church, that a local church should be independent and under the lordship of Christ. And so, therefore, I cannot be a Presbyterian from my understanding of church government. Okie dokie. Last one here. Congregationalism. Dear old congregationalism, the messiest and most lovable forms of church government. Uh, after venturing through Episcopalianism and Presbyterianism, uh, I'm talking about congregationalism just, man, just feels like a comfort food, like a cheeseburger in paradise. Uh, anyway, so congregationalism is just what it sounds like. 
It's a con- congregational government of a church. It's the church where the congregation governs itself. Uh, congregational churches are mostly Baptist, but there's there's a lot of other um, uh, non-denomination Pentecostal churches that would fit this description as well. Uh, there's also some other less common churches uh, that would fit this mold as well. All right, so perhaps the most important thing to know about congregational forms of government is that uh, the churches that use this model are fully autonomous, fully autonomous. They are independent. Uh, In these other two forms of church government, the churches are all linked together, right? So all these churches are part of the same uh, the same church, right? You have your local congregations, but they are all part of, you know, the Presbyterian church or the Anglican church. Um, well, here in congregationalism, every local congregation is a fully independent church, right? It governs itself um, and it is independent from others. Uh, the main reason for taking this position is the Lordship of Christ, right? That Christ is to be head of the church. Um, and so, therefore, you know, having multiple uh, governing bodies in between the congregation and Christ as Lord above all, uh, we feel like puts a barrier uh, to that truth where Christ is not himself Lord of the church, but Christ is Lord of the bishops who are Lord of the church, etc., you know. Um, so, as for who has authority in the congregational churches, well, that's the congregation, obviously. So the pastors or the deacons in a congregational church, uh, they 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 make proposals. They um, they they deal with particular issues. They they handle a lot of stuff on their own, frankly. Um, but the congregation uh, votes on issues. Uh, now, what's voted on varies by church to church. Some churches vote on everything, right? They have a business meeting. They talk everything out, and everything comes to a vote. Um, some churches, uh, vote on relatively little. I, th- I think we fit in this, uh, in that kind of bucket. We, we don't vote on, on very much. So, um, anyway, so the congregation, uh, its decision in a truly congregational church, the decision of the congregation is binding. And we'll, we'll talk more about this later, um, this particular doctrine, but the doctrine that kind of drives congregational rule is the priesthood of all believers. That's the doctrine that states that every person is competent to stand before the Lord uh, without the need of a human go-between. Uh, so as such, every member of a local church should be able to make decisions, make decisions that are binding to that church. Um, all right, so I know that's not much info about congregationalism, but we're going to spend uh, the entire episode next week covering it in more detail since it's the structure and the tradition that we come from as Trace. Uh, but now I'll leave you, before we go, with just some brief analysis of congregationalism as compared to the other two forms we talked about. So first, I think congregationalism is the most biblical model of the three Um even if you don't adopt the model wholesale. Um, I believe that you, when, you, when you look through the New Testament, you see this model of churches governing themselves. You see them being um, independent and function from other churches. Um, and so uh, when congregationalism is, is functioning best, it can help a church develop its own particular identity and to grow, become stronger um, in that way. 
I will say weaknesses uh, sometimes. Congregationalism can be messy and difficult. It, it can uh, lead to mob rule. Um, but I will say, as Mark Dever has pointed out, um, congregationalism is the only form of church government that has begun drifting towards liberalism in the, the past century and come back from it, right? So uh, it is a way uh, that kind of holds leaders accountable, right? So if there is something, uh, some kind of problematic doctrine that's going around leaders and churches, well, congregationalism as a model should be able to hold those leaders accountable to uh, the churches. All right, brief summary here before we go. I know this was a lot. This was a long episode, um, so I appreciate you listening and and sticking through that. Um, But let me just summarize these to help you before we go, because, again, that was a lot of info. Uh, So... The major points here, Episcopal governments, uh, government structures of churches, they place authority in the bishop who is made a bishop through the process of apostolic succession where current bishops select and ordain new bishops. Um, and those those bishops have a pretty strong authority. They have a hierarchical structure and uh, yeah, and then and the congregations of those churches are all part of the same church. Um, so you have Presbyterianism where elders are elected from the congregation, uh, as, as far as lay elders, at least. And then you have, um, these churches who, these, these elders, excuse me, who meet together, uh, as you go up the chain of hierarchy, um, all the way to the general assembly, which makes decisions for the whole church. And finally you have congregationalism, which is independent, autonomous, uh, separate, um, excuse me, each church is autonomous, independent, and separate from other churches, and the congregation governs itself and makes its own decisions. All right, and so as we come to our sweet, beautiful closing this week, as I do every week, I want to give you a challenge. Um, This week, I want to challenge you in that I want you to reflect do you value the leadership of the church? Um, if our leadership was to begin to go astray, would you be concerned about it? Or would you just say, hey, you know, as long as I can keep coming to church here, see my friends, and phone this baby in, I'm fine with that. Y'all do what you want to do. Or would you hold us accountable? So think about that and make a decision. You no, don't worry. You don't have to like come up with a reason like to 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 be mad at us. Um, but you know, ask yourself: Are you really um, are you really uh, opposed to the idea of your, of your leaders going astray? Are you willing to hold us accountable? All right. So as always, if you have any questions, you can email me at avery at tracecrossing.org. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great day. Uh-huh.